Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast. We're here bringing together the best leaders within L&D from across the UK region of recruitment to talk about passions, challenges, insights. If it's something to do with L&D, we are going to touch on it, I am sure. I'm Chris Hackett. I am an onboarding recruitment consultant at Evolution Recruitment, and we here are specialising in the recruitment of freelancers across Nordics, Europe, and the UK itself. Today, I am joined by Esther Buffy, a senior learning and development and inclusion partner at uh, Stanton House, and Rich Benson, Vice President of Learning and Development at GQR Global Markets. And our topic today is to discuss the very important topic in LD, effective training approaches for experienced staff. Now, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Rich Benson, if you could start us off, can you provide some context to yourself, sir? Yeah, sure. Um, so as Chris mentioned, I'm Vice President of Learning Development for GQR Global Markets. We are across the UK, US and Sydney, and we work in, in four different markets, life sciences, tech and trading, healthcare, and my market, which is the legal space. I've been in learning development since 2015 in a number of different companies in a number of different sectors, and recently transitioned from a life sciences firm into the legal space at GQR. Thank you so much. And uh, Esther, if you could provide some context for yourself, please, as well. Yeah, definitely. I'm very happy to be here. I'm I'm Esther. I'm the Senior Learning and Development and Inclusion Partner for Stanton House, also for our sister brand, um, which is the executive search firm Acuity. So I recognize that the title is a little bit odd, but it's, uh, it's reflecting my dual role in, in L&D, as well as my responsibility as diversity and inclusion lead for both Stanton House and Acuity. So we're an award-winning recruitment firm. Uh, just last week, actually, we very excitingly came fifth in the UK's small best companies to work for. Uh, we have a presence as well in the UK, US, and APAC doing perm, interim, and exact search. Our key markets are finance and accounting, transformation, and cybersecurity. So I myself joined the firm a bit over a year and a half ago um, after spending about six years in executive search, both as a consultant and diversity and inclusion lead. So while I was definitely involved in induction and training before joining, um, this was really my first kind of internal step into a formal L&D role. Um, I also just handed in my, my thesis. So if if I pass, fingers crossed, I would also will also just this year graduate in uh, organizational psychology degree, which has been immensely helpful in, uh, in stepping into my L&D role um, at Stanton House. Thank you so much, Esther. So much. I love the diversity inclusion that you're part of. I'm sure that we will be touching on that maybe at some point in this podcast as well. Uh, so now that we've established a context to each of you, we're going to now move on to our topic of focus. And as I've already said, today's podcast topic is effective training approaches for experienced staff. Yes, that's you, five-year recruiters, thinking you're too good for L&D, thinking we can't develop you. You're wrong. We can. We can help you increase your book value. Believe us. And that is what we're about today. As usual, we're going to work around the, the room. It'll be myself, be Rich, or be Esther. We're going to, we've got some questions which we're going to discuss and hopefully provide some insights for you all. So we're going to start off with Esther and your uh, question that you've uh, that you've posed, which is 
how can we effectively motivate experienced staff to invest time in training and L&D? Um, so Esther, could you provide some context to where this questions come from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I must say before I, I give the context, I actually really love about Stanton House that we do have that that buy-in into L&D fr from the top down, which is so important and it really does help our job a lot. Um, and we actually have people across all levels involved in kind of training and on that support. But I'm very curious to hear um, Richard's thoughts and, and your own thoughts on, you know, that community communication of the value to this to experienced staff because it goes with ups and downs you know sometimes people are are very excited and they're they're very into joining me into into upskilling everyone across the board but but also you know when when pressures are high when when targets are high um and when that sales hat comes on you know that L&D aspect might sometimes be forgotten a little bit so you know just curious to to understand what's the best way we feel that we can communicate that that value, not just for the people coming in, but really for experienced staff themselves, because I think them going through that is is actually hugely valuable for themselves as well. Thank you for that, Esther. So if we fire this over then to Rich, um, what are your thoughts then in terms of getting people motivated to get, you know, to invest in L&D? You know, I was really pleased that this question um, came up, Esther. Thanks for the question, because it is something that we're constantly working to have better outcomes from. My first ever L&D role was um, at a, a much larger firm than the one I'm at now. We had a high volume of experienced staff members going through upskilling training. And it was a little bit of a sort of revolving door. The number of people that were coming through with 18 months plus experience and going through a, a package of training was quite high. So very, very early in my L&D career, I was able to get quite a lot of reps and see all of the, the challenges that can arise, particularly from the mindset, which varies hugely, as I'm sure you'll both agree, between people who are sponges, really keen to, whether it's come back to HQ or, or whatever it might be and, and receive some, some upskilling, and others who just feel like it's costing them their time and you know they're unable to to execute their daily activities it's really interesting that's part of your context for the question esther you mentioned that word communication and that's just so crucial isn't it the way that we're communicating the value that these individuals will derive from the training interaction and that is something i think in the past i have not done perfectly well and have learned that actually if if they don't know the reason why they're there, then you're you're you know scuppered before you even begin. So you're know, thinking about uh, that second habit of Stephen Kobe, start with the end in mind. We need to have a clear vision for the outcome that the learner is going to receive. And actually, one of the challenges attached to that with an experienced individual or group of individuals is it might not be the same thing. Unlike with onboarding training or even initial six twelve months of of training propositions largely speaking even in different markets you're teaching very similar skills and exposing people to very similar content whereas if you've got people who are in niche markets or niches within niches then what they need from us can vary so in order to communicate effectively the value that the individuals and groups will derive we need to first know 
exactly what's the highest value that we can deliver. And so that comes from training needs analyses. It comes from speaking to our stakeholders to understand what's happening within the teams. By doing that, I think the buy-in that you get early in a session or a package of sessions means that you're going to have a better outcome in terms of them being motivated to be there and thereby participating in sessions. And an extra benefit of that is if you're in a group of people, all of whom you may have expected to be skeptical in terms of your, your peers as a delegate, but actually people are participating and contributing, then the herd mentality kicks in. And before you know it, you've got a room buzzing with people sharing ideas and getting good outcomes. Thank you for that, Rich. Really nice, uh, very nice answer there. I love your points about communication and being able to communicate with your stakeholders. Esther, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, just, just also follow up questions, really, because um, I, I think what, what, I, what I'm curious about is that difference between kind of smaller firms and, and bigger firms. So Stanton House is quite a small firm. And I think for this particular point, that actually helps because you can sometimes even do individual programs. Uh, while I can imagine, and Rich, very curious about your experience at, at that first firm you mentioned that was you know much bigger than where you currently are. When you have such a big cohort and, and you know, people have to go through maybe a, a program that was fully designed and quite general. How do you then make that still individual? Um, so we, you know, we, we have a couple of programs that are kind of developing expertise and, you know, those types of programs that you might do a couple of years in. But what we struggle with sometimes is, right, we want to make that individual as well, because you're absolutely right. I fully agree. When you're a couple, you know, a couple of years in, no one's the same. Everyone has different needs, different learning needs, different skills, different market, also different ways of learning. You know, someone would love a two hour theory session, me, for example, but most people are not crazy like that and they just want to, you know, get on with things. So, so yeah, sorry, long, long preface for a question of, you know, how do you balance that individual need with a big company cohorts? That's a great question. It's not straightforward. And I think so the company I'm referring to is roughly 1500 headcount head company. I'm currently at a firm that is at around 400. And my last firm was just under 200. So I've seen a few different sizes with a, with a mid-sized company, like a 1500 headcount head company. It is super, super challenging. There are two things that I did at that firm that helped. The first is the pre-work. So I sort of alluded to this before, but you know, reaching out to either the individual who's coming in or their manager, director, the, the stakeholder with whom you're dealing, um, that can be really, really helpful because then it, it pre-arms you with specific pieces of information, maybe a particular placement that was a real win for them, maybe something that was not so good, so that when they come in, you've got some bits and pieces of information about them. And unless you're training really huge groups of people, um, you know, I would, I would usually stick to about eight people at that business. You can have a couple of kernels of information that are really specific to them when they come in, uh, placements they've done and so on and so forth. The other thing is there's a couple of tricks you can do. This uh, particular one I learned in my billing days before I was in L&D. I had a business development team, uh, relatively substantial in size and I learned from my managing director at the time that if you're jumping into their business and understanding the names of particular um, candidates, particular clients with whom they're dealing, it's a case of shouting across desk, hey, Chris, have you spoken to Esther about that matter that you spoke about 10 days ago? Have we followed up? And then your team members are like, how on earth does my manager know everything that's happening within the business? You can 
apply the exact same way of thinking into delivering learning and development, particularly to more skeptical audiences. And so that pre-work you do with them, with their stakeholder, with their manager, gives you the information and then you deploy it in that way during a session. And that quickly gets buy-in. It is a little bit cheeky and I'm Probably, uh, I probably shouldn't be telling this on the podcast because now all my all my colleagues will know what I'm doing. Um, but it just makes them see that you're across what's actually happening. And if you can then add some insight, some useful advice in the context of whatever content you're delivering in a package, then all of a sudden you see people's ears prick up. You see people lean forward. Suddenly the pen comes out of the pocket and notes start being taken. And that's obviously yeah, a favourable outcome from a session. I like it. So what I, what I believe we've just touched on is the importance of a panoptic gaze when it comes to being an L&D rep, just looking around and knowing all the facets of our recruiters to use to get that buy-in. Esther, something to add to uh, what Rich has just said? I just wanted to add that I actually think it's a, it's a not very often spoken about part of our job as L&D professionals, that kind of pastoral care, diplomatic conversations you need to have, kind of knowing the underlying things that are going on in teams with people that just really adds so much value to training and, and to development. And it's that, you know, that personal aspect that I, I personally also really, really enjoy. So yeah, I really like that, that Richard, and I've actually never really considered that those two are so intrinsically linked, but, but they are right. Because one, you know, the success of, of that, getting that buy-in that falls and stands with with that individual feeling like you have their best interests at heart and you're trying to improve their career and develop them. So, yeah, so just wanted to add that. I really like that. Hey, thank you so much. Really nice response to that first question. It was a meaty one. It was a brilliant question, so thank you. We're going to move on now to uh, your question, uh, Rich, which was um, what can L&D practitioners do to ensure experienced staff have the maximum possible positive impact on junior staff. Given that there are generational differences, that can mean that the two groups have wildly different expectations. So would you provide some context for this question, please, Richard? Yes, yeah, certainly. So more seasoned staff often think and act quite differently from, from less experienced staff, right? So this could be uh, an age or generational thing, um, but it's not only that, it's the individual's experience. It's got a, at least as much of a part to play. So I guess my question is around supporting those more seasoned team members to be able to work with, communicate effectively with, and eventually lead people who will likely see the world very differently from them. So thinking about uh, an individual contributor in a mentoring capacity, an emerging leader, very new to having direct reports, um, people at that stage have this huge mental leap to make as they've got to step outside of their own experience and way of working and attempt to genuinely understand junior staff who've had really different developmental environment and sets of experiences. So, you know, your experienced person might be amazing at understanding clients, candidates, but often seem to sort of struggle to do the same thing with junior colleagues. And the approaches that worked for the experienced person when they were starting out aren't as effective or aren't tolerable for the junior person. So often the, the experienced person fails to look deeper and just you know, judges the junior person as ineffective. So an, an example of this would be an experienced person has a mentor for the first time and might complain that she or he is always clocking off at their contracted end time and puts down their support, subpar productivity to that. You know, in my day, we'd still be on the phones at 9pm is something that you might hear from an old school recruiter. So it's really about what can we do to to bridge that mental gap 
as quickly and as pain-free as possible. Apologies for the very long contextual explanation there. That wasn't at all. Um, that was very concise um, and really quite poignant as well. Um, so uh, what have you got to say in response to that question, Esther? Yeah, re really interesting question. And I would come at this very much with my kind of inclusion hat on. Um, and I think what we sometimes underestimate is, is actually how much we do have in common and that, yes, there's absolutely some of those generally generational divides there is you know we all grow up in a, such a different world context if you compare now to you know 25 30 years ago so absolutely we're going to be influenced by that but actually i i do really believe that that there's more that we have in common and with just communication um i think that doesn't always land because people might say things in a certain way and that actually is then taken in, in a completely different context because of that different experience that, that we've had. So one of the things that, that we implemented last year, which is a little bit left field, so, so hear me out, and it's not a traditional L&D solution, um, but we launched something called the Empathy Series. And what the Empathy Series was about was really about understanding our, our co-workers from a different perspective, really understanding, right, what happens in people's lives that influences how they show up to, to work, and then through that, cultivate more understanding. And so we have a monthly session, they're about half an hour. And what we do is, is I provide some research context initially for about 15 minutes. And then we have actually people in the firm sharing their lived experience with that topic. So to give you an idea, the topics we discussed are having kids and combining that with work males mental health and specific challenges that that men have on, from a mental health perspective addiction uh structural racism um, neurodiversity there's there's something like nine or ten that we've done um and we've gotten an amazing buy-in where we had people from the operation board all the way to to grads sharing their story and their experience and i think that's bridged such an understanding between people where actually what people come out of that with this right actually yeah i never thought of it in that way and that people that person might be you know clocking off because they have a child and they need to go pick them up from school and that's why they're doing that or you know they have things going on at home or or even just a general kind of opportunity to share that you know what happens in our lives does influence how we show up and i think the result of that and it's not a direct answer to your question but i think what the result of that was is it did bridge that gap a little bit where actually people realize, you know, actually we are all similar in, in more ways than we are different. So, you know, I don't think necessarily that a series such as that is a direct answer to how do you bridge to generate, generate generational, difficult word, divide um, when it comes from a skills upskilling perspective. But, you know, mentor programs 100% would stand and fall with that understanding of each other and and that empathy really and and understanding that person's context so so yeah long explanation but that's it got me thinking of of that way and and ways in which we can improve actually our communication in the workplace beyond just oh they're clocking off and i think this or that and it not landing well i think it's um a really interesting um approach that you're taking in that company where you have specific inclusion based sessions 
which are, are they opt-in, do you mind me asking? Are they opt-in? Yeah, they're completely voluntary. Um, we, I don't think they would work if we force people to join. We've actually had um, the intake of them has only increased. And most of them, it's actually been honestly astonishing, like like the whole firm or 90%. Um, and the, the speakers at first feel a little bit apprehensive, but actually the amount of support and messages they get afterwards from people saying, I can't believe you shared that. I never knew that about you. It's just really created almost a cultural shift in the company where we're not, you know, we're not judging first, but we're thinking first, right, where is this person coming from? And, you know, I, I would hope that that's a skill that you can implement in so many different ways, right? Like take a step back. Okay. Why are they clocking off? Are they actually not motivated or are they motivated? What motivates them? You know, those kind of things and, and not judging, but first thinking with empathy, I think would be my my thought there. Yeah, I really I really like where you're coming from with this. Is that I know Stephen Covey has already been mentioned here, but it is that sense of seeking first to understand before being understood and actually being, you know, understanding their paradigm, what's their perspective, focusing on the second person you before you're then putting yourself into their shoes and saying, this is what I would have done if I was in your place. I think that's, a, you know, and the way that you're doing that through inclusion is actually quite beautiful it's, it's awesome Esther really nice Richard something to add to this yeah I just think that's such a great innovative idea your empathy series what I'm curious about is those topics that you mentioned were those topics that you and your team identified as the best places to to begin or did you canvas the the, the population within your business because they all I mean each one of those that you mentioned I can see immediately there would be a huge benefit to, to uh, discuss it. Yeah, absolutely. So it actually started um, from a very kind of left field conversation where we had uh, a member in, in, in our company who was struggling with quite severe menopause symptoms. And our challenge was, right, how do we share this with the business in a way that that person gets the empathy and the time that they deserve because those symptoms can be quite severe. They don't have to be, luckily, but they can be. But it's also a little bit of one of those topics where people kind of clock out, right? Because you say menopause, and they're like, oh no, well, you know, I'm a 20 year old guy or whatever, and like I don't, I don't, I don't. This doesn't, this doesn't involve me. Um, and so from that, we started having that conversation, and then we actually thought oh, but that person was struggling with their mental health and that person was having this. And it's almost all those kind of conversation we just spoke about, right? That kind of background information that you do know as an L&D professional that kind of led us to think maybe there's something in here. Um, and we started it off and I'll be completely honest, we thought this is either going to be revolutionary and great or it's going to flop. Like that was our uh, thinking with it. And and luckily, the you know, it, it was great and, and it really, really worked. Um, but yeah, then after, I suppose, maybe five or six sessions where the topics kind of started to dry out. So that was based on what we knew before from conversations with managers, things that were happening in, in the firm. We then actually opened it up and said, does anyone have anything that they want to bring in, anything that they want to speak about? And that's where an, an additional five or six topics, I think, came up. So so it was a bit of a mix of, of, of both. Um, I must say one of the reasons I do think it worked, and it's absolutely nothing to do with me because this was already there before I started, is as a firm, there is a very base level of psychological safety and um, it's a very values-driven, open firm. So, you know, I can imagine that if a company 
it's less set up that way. There might need to be some groundwork before you go in there with a 30 minute session about the menopause because people might think not sure about this. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, there's, there's some, some more thinking that goes into it, of course, but, but yeah. So, um, you know, we've, we've got quite a, quite an astonishing answer there to, to what is quite a difficult question as well. Um, and I think to, to summarize as best as I can, um, would be that the, the key to having experienced staff take on the mantle of being a mentor or communicating with people that they may not have commonality with instead of finding commonality it's just to understand where they're coming from what is what is what is that they value what is it that they have as a perspective what are their paradigms so by understanding them it means that you can then cooperate together and find synergy as a team even if your values aren't aligning and even if there's th there's that lack of commonality which is then that professional respect courtesy and approach which is we're all after the same thing which is success we just want to be professionally successful so that we can have individual freedom and liberty with our life I think that's a really nice answer. So thank you. Um, we're going to move on uh, to Esther's second question, um, which uh, thank you so much for posing this question, by the way. It's, it is another fab one as well. What is the best way to onboard experienced staff? Um, and I'm just going to add a caveat to this because, um, you know, we, we you know, as, as a small recruiting firm as the one that I work within, when we uh, when we have the opportunity to hire an experienced recruiter, um, we, you know, we, we take them on board, we want to onboard them. But our process at Evolution, I, from what I have gathered, is extremely different to the approaches taken by normal recruitment firms. And so getting an experienced recruiter to understand our process, which is long game, it's not short game. It's not KPI driven. It's very much about playing the long game, build relationships, become, have intimacy with your clients before we then start the recruiting. It's sometimes alien to them. So I'm very intrigued about this question. Um, Esther, could you provide some context for this question, please? So, so not a lot of context here. Basically, I don't think we do it very well. Um, I don't think we have this right. Um, and I actually don't know many firms who do. You know, I have thought about this a lot and, and thought about what's the best way to do it. Um, so that's really the context. I think the biggest struggle for me, it's probably two, two sided. It's one, it's getting that engagement, you know, because someone's like, I know how to do my job. I don't need an L&D session. And the second, it's it's it links to what you just said, Chris, it's, it's merging the what they have done for three, four, five, 15, however many years, and how we want to see them do it without diminishing that experience that they have, because I think there's so much greatness in someone's experience. And I, I never believe you should just rewire them to become a Stanton House recruiter. No, they should bring all that experience. So, so yeah, those are for me, the two biggest challenges. And I don't think we get it right at all. So that's the context. I, I would personally like to meet the recruiting firm that believes that they do this right. Um, so <laughs> Richard, from yourself, no pressure. Um, what are your thoughts on this? It's a great question. And I certainly wouldn't profess to to being perfect at it. Far, far from it. I was very lucky, though, at my, my last firm, iFarm Consulting, to have a series of experienced hires across a number of different regions and functional markets within life sciences. So I've got some recent 
experience with this. One thing that I found really, really useful was engaging with the pre-boarding process. So depending on how your firm structures and the degree to which the L&D function dovetails with the talent acquisition internal recruitment function, it might be that you've been exposed to or even interviewed this individual before they join the business. So when that's the case, clearly you've got a baseline understanding. Um, in my case, that was that was almost never the case. So I was looking after our ANZ team in Sydney, our DAC team in Munich and Frankfurt, and our UK EU team uh, based out of London. So occasionally I'd meet people during their, their interview process, but, but largely not. So I would work with the person to whom they'd be reporting. And nine times out of 10, I would speak to the individual to conduct a cursory training needs analysis before they joined. Because if on day one, we've got a one size fits all program that we're gonna deploy and then maybe make adjustments to on the fly, we've kind of made our job way more difficult than it needs to be. And often the buy-in that you get from a simple 30 minute Teams or audio call with an experienced individual before they're on board means you've already got sort of an emotional contract. You, you set your stall out as the reason I'm here is to, to help your transition, not teach you how to be a recruiter, how to be an exec search or, or headhunter. Um, they, they understand there's a value proposition and that you respect their existing experience. Now, it could be that they've got you know, 18, 24 months recruitment experience and they're pretty good um, and they maybe consider that they don't need anything else. In that situation, easing them in and having that warm handshake before you meet them definitely helps. Um, I don't think it completely indemnifies you against the risk of having to make adjustments and edits and, and pivots during that training phase when they, they join a the business. So that's the first thing, understanding to the greatest degree possible before they join. I think in actual sessions, when you're delivering training content, it's a given, and it's maybe an obvious point, but we have to acknowledge their experience particularly in a group of more than one. So if you have a number of different people in the room, everyone's going to have been introduced to one another. That's not enough in that first icebreaking session with some people who've just met one another and are looking to you to receive training from you. We have to keep referring back in the sessions to their experience, asking for their opinions and views. But it's a really, really fine line, because if you don't do this correctly, then you hand over the reins of the session to the delegates and then we go off track. Then the learning outcomes aren't met and actually it can feel like you're just having a conversation rather than delivering some specific targeted learning and development. So those are a couple of things that spring to mind initially. The feedback piece, I think, is crucial too. If we're onboarding experienced people, either very frequently or very infrequently, it doesn't matter. The, the feedback that we've got from the last person or people that joined the business and went through an experienced hire L&D package, we need to get their really honest and open feedback and be prepared to be criticized and make adjustments on, on the back of that. So the, th the three things, pre-boarding, acknowledging their experience whilst maintaining control, and then getting as much feedback as you can are my thoughts on this? A really good answer. Thank you, Richard. Esther, would you like to um, like add anything to that? Yeah, just a question, really. What's your um, system for obtaining that feedback? There's been a number of, uh, of different things. Um, using online surveys, you know, SurveyMonkey or something similar is, is quite good. Um, I also like to ask them at the end of each session. I genuinely will just ask them with a, you know, an open mind for their, their feedback. Generally speaking, in my experience, if you've set the session up well, then you tend to get 
fairly candid feedback. In fact, I was observing a session from a colleague of mine here at GQI, based in, in New York, Kirsty, and she was delivering training and she's been doing a lot of training for uh, onboarding experienced hires recently. And she did, she did just that. So she delivered a session that she had put together. It's a brand new session. Um, it was the first time delivering it and she's delivering it to an incredibly experienced, storied and successful um, BD individual. And because of the way in which she had conducted the session and the way that she'd set the scene up top. And in addition to that, the relationship that she cultivated with this individual in the preceding few days. She got really, really clear, useful, candid feedback, which was 95% positive because it's a brilliant session. Um, but yeah, I, I think you can do it both ways. You can do it anonymously afterwards, but because it, it tends to be one or two or three people at a time, we're not usually onboarding 20 very experienced recruiters or headhunters. It's, it's less important that it's anonymous because you're going to know who it is anyway, right? So sometimes having that face-to-face -face across the table, immediate feedback, you do elicit a more honest response in that scenario than you would do with a cohort of brand new staff members. Thank you for that, Richard. Um, and again, the responses have been absolutely perfect in this podcast. I hope we're all getting something out of it because I know I am. I'm spotting up. I'll be making notes, that's for sure. Um, so we're going to go to our final question, which is from Richard. Um, and again, thank you for doing this question as well. Um, given that as L&D assets, we are not immersed in the marketplace to the same degree as our learners, we may not have the solutions that they need. And what is your preferred approach to this situation? So, um, Esther, have you got anything to say to this question? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you asked this question because it was actually a source of anxiety for me when I first um, stepped into this role. Um, as, as, as I mentioned, my background is executive search, but actually the majority of that was spent um, in the public sector, very specifically um, recruiting professors and, and senior research leaders for universities, which couldn't be further from interim finance and accounting and transformation professionals. Um, so, you know, this is something that I, I definitely considered stepping into this role. But what I was reminded of was um, when I first started doing um, executive search myself and and I had a similar anxiety because like I'm speaking to these professors of physics and I don't know anything about physics and I don't know anything about being an academic and someone had said to me you know you, you don't need to what you need to know is is about recruiting them and and placing them and I think in L&D it's quite similar you know I I am not going to pretend that I need to be an expert in placing interim accounting professionals because that's not my job my job is is L&D and um, and so I think that's acknowledging that and and not pretending that it's anything different. So if if a specific solution requires different expertise, then I absolutely want to depend on the amazing team of actual professionals that we have that that do this day to day. So you know I think that means that you know part of your L and D role is. Um, building those connections with everyone across the firm and, and bringing in the expertise when you need it and, and not, you know, making yourself to be something that you're not because uh, stepping into this role, I had never even done interim recruitment and, and it was a bit of a learning curve for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I am not an L&D expert. And, and I think there's something yeah really great in that as well, because it means you can collaborate and work together and, and take the expertise from where you need it. I guess would be my answer to that. Yeah, I really like this question because uh, on a personal note, 
I don't have a recruitment background. My background is secondary English education. So not only am I not immersed in the marketplace, I've not been immersed in recruitment. And one thing I learned very early on is I am a learning and development expert. I am developing in recruitment. Um, I have become and I'm becoming a learning and development expert in recruitment. But I will never be a learning and development expert for your job roles in your patch. It's never going to happen. And what we can give is the advice and the guidance and the development opportunities for how to recruit. But when it comes to their specific roles and patches, it's not I found that's been a success for me is to not shy away from the fact that I may not have the answers that they are after for their market and their patch. And actually to know who they can turn to or I can turn to for advice so that I can go back to that person and say, look, you've come to me with this problem and here is actually a solution I found from one of our experts in the office. Uh, and an example of this actually was we have a, a new onboarder who's actually quite niche for gaming. It's a very niche topic. And in their initial outreach and just looking for people that would be possible clients, he was lucky to get more than 30. And I initially struggled to think, how can I widen this search? How can I widen this? And I went to someone who had a very similar niche patch. And I said, look, this is this is the problem. How did you get around this problem? And by them educating me, I could educate them. And I actually got them to team together then to work together as a mentor-mentee situation. And as a result, I then got that trainee to teach me to make sure that that learn had been embedded by the trainee. And that person now is completely autonomous. They now know how to search for their patch. And I think that was for me the big trick was to not pretend to be the expert or to be the expert in developing people, which sometimes is to find the people best suited to help in that regard. Esther, something to add? I have a question for both of you, actually, because, which I, I hope I'm not mistaken, but I, I believe your background initially also was in recruitment when you when you started your career. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to to find out from, from the two of you, what's been that biggest challenge initially in, in, in moving in, into uh, the recruitment sector and, and L&D? Is, there, is, it, is it different in, in recruitment than it is maybe in, in, I believe it was real estate, Richard, but correct me if I'm wrong, and, um, and teaching? Yeah, that's Absolutely right. So my background was business development within the real estate sector, and I was headhunted by a, a rec to rec, and that's how I ended up in in recruitment L&T. So luckily for me, there are huge parallels between those two marketplaces, those two sectors, and I had been exposed to recruitment to a degree as part of the L&T function at the real estate firm where I worked because we dovetailed closely with our talent acquisition team and also worked with external recruiters. So I had seen what it looked like, but I, I like you said, Chris, I'll never be um, that person that's got 10, 15 years of recruitment behind me. Actually, the transition that I had was much more straightforward than one might expect. Two reasons for that. The first, as I've already mentioned, is how closely uh, those two markets resemble themselves, one another, right? So in real estate, you sell twice, you sell to the buyer and the seller. In recruitment, you sell twice, you sell to the client and to the candidate. And there are dozens of other similarities. The second reason 
that it was quite straightforward was my the director of people and culture at IFAR, my previous firm, is just an absolute rock star. Leah Naffer, she's fantastic. And she and Harrison, who is the uh, the LNT manager at that firm, made my onboarding process straightforward because they understood their business so well and the needs of their people. Right. So for me, it was it was more straightforward than I was expecting. Actually, I was a little bit intimidated, but uh, it's going OK so far. Yeah. Imposter syndrome been there myself, that's for sure. Um, when I when I stepped in from education, uh, I had I had some sales experience before I became a teacher. Um, but one thing I I would say that teaching is, and I know this is a uh, secondary teaching podcast, but it's one of the most difficult sales jobs in the world is to sell to a fifteen year old. Let's pick up a pen. Let's write an essay about Shakespeare. Yeah, this bad boy. Let's let's do something about Romeo. Romeo, and let's talk about why he's so emotional. And um, yeah, that that is something I've learned in terms of recruitment. L and D, there's so many transferable skills. What well, and especially in recruitment, recruitment is really to, to be effective in recruitment. I I believe you've got to be an expert in soft. Got to be an expert in um, understanding and communicating and um, probing as well not being afraid to put yourself in a vulnerable position where you make yourself look like an idiot so someone can explain something to you that could be a challenge or something that might be just you know obvious to them in their world of which they work with and um, that's something that I learned um, quite quite early on when I started doing my core coaching is or an L&D rep is just about someone enabling a person to be the very best that they can be in terms of engaging with people and I think the moment you can get someone to engage and to connect with other people very quickly, either on video call or on the phone, they're going to be okay. And I think that was something that I, that's something I've picked up um, from where I was as a teacher. Like you just got to get them to just get, get a student to trust you that you, that they can do it. And that is the soft skill, just understanding the emotions of a character in a book. Same thing about understanding the emotions of a client. Um, so that, that's what it was like for me. I hope that answers your question. I kind of went off on a tangent there. It's going to become quite militant now. Let's uh, let's go and strike. <laughs> no, and I, I love that. Thanks for both your answers. And yeah, absolutely. I think that last bit you mentioned, Chris, is actually beautifully summarised because I think that that's so right and that makes it so versatile and and yeah, to be applied in many different sectors and areas. I think. Cool. Right. Well, thanks for that. That's validation right there. So, um, yeah, great. I think at that point we can end our podcast. It has been an absolutely fabulous conversation and I can't thank the pair of you enough for wanting to put yourselves out there in that, in that position to share thoughts, to share insights, also to share challenges as well and to acknowledge that, you know, learning development is ever developing. It's in the moment you think you're perfect, you're lost. You, you can't rest on your laurels. Um, so just once again, our guests on today's podcast have been the wonderful Esther Buffy, Senior Learning Development and Inclusion Partner at Stanton House and the effervescent, the vibrant Rich Benson, Vice President of Learning and Development at GQR Global Markets. Um, and my name has been Chris Hackett, onboarding recruitment consultants for Evolution Recruitment Solutions. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on email. And if you wish to join the podcast, this is chris.hackett at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thank you so much. Thank you for our guests. Thank you for listening. And we hope you can join us on the next one. Ta-ta.